pray and then let's look into this very, very um, amazing but difficult passage. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We have sang to you, we've lifted up our voices, we've made a joyful noise to you, Lord. You are certainly deserving of that. But now we turn to your word, Lord. Um, What a blessing it is to have a church that desires to hear God's word, to hear it taught expositionally, to understand it verse by verse, see it in context, and then make application to our lives, Lord. We pray that you would do that today for your glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that you would help me now. I cannot speak on your behalf. You, your spirit, must take these truths and pierce our hearts, Lord, but cause me to remember what I've studied. And may we all be blessed through the word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians 5.21, just a tremendous verse, says that he, God, um, and, you, and you can see both Christ and the Father in this, he, God, made him Christ, who knew no sin. It's a, it's a qualifying statement of the him of Christ. God made him who knew no sin, impeccable, uh, sinless. And then the verse goes on, to be sin on our behalf. To be sin on our behalf. To be treated as though he was a sinner. And then the great last statement says that we may gain his righteousness. Gain his righteousness. That's a doctrine of imputation. Such an important doctrine to us. Bible teaches that our righteousness is just filthy rags to him. And so we must have Christ's righteousness. Great preacher and evangelist of the 1700s, George Whitfield, said this, I can see no other foundation whereupon to build my hopes of salvation, but on the rock of Christ's personal righteousness imputed to my soul. Christ's personal righteousness is extremely important to our salvation as we see this godless, in a way, unjust trial as we look at this today. His righteousness, sinlessness, never responding in a sinful way, never sinning is the key to our salvation. Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us to fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix our eyes upon him. Today we are going to study a very difficult text. Um, It's hard, it's hard to look at it, it's hard to realize what Jesus went through. But the Bible wants us to fix our eyes on what Jesus did. Everything else is clamoring for your eyes and your heart right now. The world and all of its issues that are going on out there are, are wanting that. But the Bible says to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes. And this is part of his sacrifice for us. Ray Ortland said this, God and God alone can take bloody violence, arrogant injustice, cunning cruelty, and bend it all around to serve redemptive purpose. Boy, is that a great statement of our past. There there is everything in this. There's bloody violence in this text. There's arrogant injustice, there's cruelty, all done so you and I can know the Lord Jesus Christ. This paragraph here of of Marx is going to describe the role of the Gentile, the pagan world, in the judgment of Jesus. And Mark is the shortest of all the accounts, but it is detailed, it's succinct in its detail, and it gives this brutal view of what Christ went through for us. And what we're about to study will help us understand what Jesus went through to heal our souls, to heal our souls. Again, I keep coming back to Isaiah 53. There's a little phrase in verse five. It says, by his scourgings, you were healed. By his scourgings, you were healed. What a, what a reminder, and this unpacks beautifully in this text. Well, we're going to look at four thoughts today. We turn to your Bibles in Mark chapter 15, verses 1, 1 through 15 will be our text. First thought this morning is, I want you to see the strange partners who condemn Christ. The strange partners who condemn Christ. I don't want you to miss the deeds of these people. These are wicked religious leaders now joining efforts with wicked Gentiles in order to put the Lord to death. And they will dismiss all that they know to be true to do this. 
Look at me in verse 1. The beginning of it says, in the, in the early morning, or the early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders and the scribes and the council immediately had a, held a consultation. Well, this is probably somewhere between 5 to 6 a.m. in the morning. Um, it's early. And the Sanhedrin had clearly already condemned Jesus to death. They had made that decision in their nighttime illegal trial. And, and, and now they, they need some kind of false legal trial. The they, sun is up. Now they have to somehow produce a legal but yet false trial. And here they produce a sentence that condemns Jesus to death. The Jews were required by their own law not to make those judgments during the nighttime. They were needed to do that during the daytime. And so they, they trying to adhere to their own law, but their law, as, we've, as we remembered in our study, also said they were supposed to have a full day between sentencing and, and execution to allow further evidence. But this is just a blatant dismissal just to expedite Jesus' death. And the members of the Sanhedrin deliberately ignore their own due process in order to put Jesus to death. Notice the list of characters that are here. Mark lists them. He says the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the whole council immediately held a consultation. Mark doubtlessly includes this list of overwhelming supporters to put Jesus to death. These were the religious leaders of the nation. Mark wants it known that these men, outside of a few that, that pulled away from this, the Nicodemuses and so like that that we know of, pulled away from this, but the majority of them condemned the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants their names out front. Notice that Jesus was bound, the Bible says, and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Well, you can, it isn't hard to understand or see that imagery most likely, he's had these shackles or cords on him since he was arrested in the garden. So this has been many hours now. He's been defenseless. If you put somebody in shackles and then beat them and spit on them and mock them and punch them in the face as had has happened, he, he, you can see how defenseless he is. It's possible that they wanted Jesus bound in front of Pilate so he would look dangerous. So he, he would look as a threat in some way. They might have been concerned that the apostles, the disciples would come and maybe try to kidnap him or have him escape. Whatever the case is, the scene describes a very militant process, bringing Jesus this tremendous threat in front of Pilate. Well, all this was predicted by Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 33, he said this, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. Uh, I remember teaching this passage uh, quite a few months ago. We're going to Jerusalem. And remember the thoughts uh, uh, Thomas says, we go to die. <laughs> but Jesus says, look, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And then this phrase, this is Christ's own words, and hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, this is very sad that the Jews would go to this length to put the Lord Jesus to to death. The Gentiles would include two people, basically, Herod um, Antipas and Pontius Pilate. Now, Mark doesn't cover the godless trial of Herod, but it's good to understand just a little bit that goes on there before we turn to this narrative. As soon as the religious leaders make their case to Pilate against Jesus, Pilate sees the opportunity to not have to do this alone because Jesus is a Galilean. Now, Either Pilate didn't want to deal with this by themselves or he, was, he was wanted some help to make a very difficult decision. And Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. So this Herod is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. Now, most of you will remember that Herod the Great was ruling during the birth of Christ. And guess what he tried to do? He tried to kill Christ then. Son now is part of this same problem. After his death, his territory was divided. Herod the Great, they call him Herod the Great because he had a large territory that he uh, oversaw. After his death, Rome said it's too big of a territory and they began to break it down. And they gave Herod Antipas, his son, eventually received the area of Galilee. Of course, this is where Nazareth is, this is where Jesus was raised, this is where the majority of the disciples were from. But Herod 
Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, his half-brother, he received the Judea area. Now, you go, well, what happened to that guy? Well, he was so mean, so ruthless, such a godless person that even Rome saw that and they deposed him. They took him out and removed him. And over a series of time, they eventually replaced him with Pontius Pilate. So now you've got Herod Antipas ruling in the Galilee area, northern, and you've got Pilate ruling in the southern area where Jerusalem is, and these two men are taking on the Lord Jesus Christ. There are fewer men than you could imagine that were as wicked as Herod. And, and they, they knew evil. Mark 6 tells us that this Herod uh, divorced his wife illegally, seduced his half-brother's wife, and married her. Not only did he commit adultery and took this woman and divorced his wife, this gal happened to be his niece. So not only was he in an adulterous affair, he was in an incestuous affair with this young gal. This man was godless. Along comes John the Baptist. John the Baptist believed God's word, and he particularly believed God's word on marriage. And he had no problem pointing out that Herod had disobeyed God and sinned greatly in his marriage. Well, that led to John the Baptist's imprisonment. You remember this? And then they have a drunken party one night for uh, the daughter of uh, Herodias, his, his new wife. And, and she dances before him, and you know the whole scene. And what do you want? Half of my kingdom. And she goes, Mom, what do I want? We want the head of John the Baptist. And this coward brings out John the Baptist, a faithful prophet, and beheads him. So this family, think about this. This family has been after Jesus from the beginning. They have been anti-Christ. They have wanted to kill him. And now Herod has a chance to judge Jesus. And the Bible is very clear as you read all of the narratives. The word on the street was possibly that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. So Herod's worried about this, isn't he? he? He's extremely paranoid. He's fearful that this Jesus might be the John the Baptist raised from the dead. And if that's true, I've got to get rid of him again. That's a problem, isn't it? Finally, Jesus is brought before him in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 8, starts to record this. And there, Herod realizes that Jesus was not John the Baptist, to his relief. And then when he tried to provoke Jesus to do signs, because he wanted to see some kind of puppet show or some kind of magic show, Jesus refused to do it and wouldn't even speak to him. So what did he do? He had his soldiers treat him with contempt and mockery, the Bible says. They abused him, beat him, dressed him up, and made amusement out of him. And when he was all done, he returned him to Pilate. And you know what's interesting about that? When he returned him to Pilate, he returned him without any judgment or any further charges. Jesus is innocent. And over and over, we will see that. The Bible is clear that Herod and Pilate did not like each other, they did not care for each other at all. They were just rival, neighbor-ruling uh, governors. But after this, the Bible says they became friends. Isn't it interesting how wickedness unites people? Oh, Lord, protect us from our sin. Let's turn back to the narrative. Look at verse 2. Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. Well, John 19 picks up a little more of this narrative, starting in verse 29. There the Bible tells us that the religious leaders simply wanted Pilate to condemn Jesus, not question him. <laughs> That's the last thing they wanted. They couldn't kill him. They just need Pilate. Hey, just kill him. We'll be done. We'll be off here before, before too much happens today because we have Passover. But that's not what happened. Once Pilate decides to hear his case, the religious leaders made three charges against him. And we find that in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. There they say these things about Jesus. They began to accuse him, Luke says, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. So now they charge him with a, with a new charge that he is driving the nation away. He's moving it away from where they want to go and where Rome would want them to be. These are deep deep charges. Then that, if that wasn't enough, they began to now try to appeal to Pilate by saying, he forbids 
giving taxes, paying taxes to Caesar. Now, if you really want to get government people wound up, start talking about not giving them money. This was a perfect charge. And so they said, look, he's teaching. And of course, these are all lies. Jesus never taught this. In fact, he actually said, Peter, go fishing. You'll catch a fish. There'll be a coin in there. Go give it to, for our taxes. Uh, he, 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 he never taught against us. But now he's got Pilate's attention. But it was the third charge that was the most aggressive. They said he is making himself out to be a king. Making himself out to be king. So as we study our text here, we begin to realize that Pilate only takes on one charge very seriously. And he asks Jesus, notice this in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Now, what the religious leaders did here was turn the acknowledgement that Jesus had acknowledged he was Messiah into a political claim for power. So certainly the Lord said, the Father had sent me. I'm here to do all of the will of the Father. I'm the sent one. I am the Christ. Never did he call himself to be king at the, during his ministry. Now he certainly will during this trial. But they're turning this. They're twisting this. They're manipulating this from his claim to be Messiah, son of God, sent from God to be some political claim for power. Now if this were true, and Jesus was posturing himself as king of the Jews, it would be treason. It'd be treason against Rome, particularly against Caesar. And that's an unpardonable sin against Rome, and you're going to die if you do that. And they knew that. So now the charge of blasphemy, if you look back in the last chapter, verse four, chapter 14, verse 64, remember, they decided that they were going to put Jesus to death because he blasphemed. Well, that's all gone now. Because Rome doesn't care. Yeah, he's crazy. He thinks he's the son of God. We're not going to kill him for that. He's king. We'll kill him for that. And they figured that out. And so now they change from the charge of blasphemy and turn it into treason in order to get out their desired outcome, and that's the death of Jesus Christ. Now, focusing on this particular charge, Pilate wants an answer from Jesus. Is this true? They're saying, you, you're, you're pursuing a political reign. Is this true? And notice in verse 2, he keeps asking that question. Are you the king of the Jews? But Jesus' answer seems just as emphatic. Notice what he says. It is as you say. And of course, Jesus could not lie. He was not going to deny who he is. He knows he's the king of kings. He knows that the resurrection, the Father is going to give him all things. He will have all things under his feet. He is going to be the representation of Psalms 110, that he'll sit at the right hand of the Father till his enemies are made his footstool. He knows what he is. But he's not doing it in a sense politically like Pilate thinks. Pilate now wants to see, are you going to rival me? Is that what you're going to do? Now, John 18, if you have a minute, just, or you have your Bibles, or turn over to John 18. You have to see this passage. Because this conversation goes on, and I want you to see how intense this can get. Because Jesus does speak during the trial. We, we, we do focus on that he was silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. And that was, that was most of the time. But there are times he speaks up, and when he says stuff, you better listen. Because it's powerful. John chapter 18, verse 33 through 37. Verse 33, therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium. So you can see he's coming in and out. He's got Christ in the praetorium. He's going back and forth. He's constantly dealing with Jesus and dealing with the crowd. This is not happening in a few minutes. This is now quite a process. Um, the morning hours are clicking by as this trial is happening. And he summons Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? This is now in line with what Mark is saying. And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? So now Jesus, as he does so well, he loves to ask questions when he is asked to provoke truth. And Pilate answered, am I not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your chief priest deliver you to me. What have you done? He, he dodges that question. He's, he's not dealing with what's the motivation behind. This is what Jesus is trying to do. But he's, he's now putting this back on the Lord Jesus. And Jesus answered, now here's, the, here's what we want to get to. My kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> if my kingdom 
were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. Could you imagine that? (laughs) If that was the plan, and Jesus was there, and the plan was to set his kingdom up at that point, oh, Pilate, you're a dead man. (laughs) Because I got one angel that can take out 185,000, and I got 12 legion them at my disposal. And he says, look, if they were fighting for me, there's no way I would be handed over. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate, not hearing any of that, says, so you are a king. <laughs> and Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm king. For this, I have been born. For this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is the truth hears my voice. And what a statement this is. Jesus knows that he's going to be the king of kings. He knows this is the process to be that person. He must go through this. He must save his members of his kingdom. He must lay his life down. He must go through all of this to save us who will be his subjects for eternity. And he knows that's what he must do. And that's why he came into the world. And he said, this is truth. Isn't it interesting? You can look at the next verse. Um, Pilate responds like, oh, well, what is truth? Well, in the Gentile world, particularly that Greek-Roman world, they had in their great philosophers and their great thinking, they all came up with that you couldn't understand what truth is. Isn't that sad? And most of the world thinks that. Well, what is truth? This political party says this, and these say this, and they still argue on Christians know the truth. We know it. We, we've been saved by it. We've been set free by it. And so Christ here says, this is truth. I've come to testify this truth. That's who I am. That's why he speaks here. Yes, I am a king. And that's why I've come. I love that passage. Convinced that Jesus was no threat to Rome, Pilate brought Jesus out. And John there, John in 18, verse 38, he says, I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. Mark picks the narrative. Look back in verse 3. And of course, Mark's a shorter one, so you kind of jump back and forth between the different narratives. But here the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. So Pilate's verdict invokes this flood of harsh rebuke, right? Harsh charges that come against the chief priest from the chief priests. And it seems they're creating even more false charges in order to persuade Pilate. Now the mob is getting mad. Now they're starting to accuse more and more of Jesus because Pilate made this statement. And Mark does not tell us what these charges were, but, but it's easy to see their anger and their hatred and the intensities building from these religious leaders. Look at verse four with me. Then Pilate questioned him again saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. When this flood of accusation subsides, Jesus is standing there silent. He's he's just silent. And, And since Pilate has already announced that he found Jesus innocent, Jesus quietly refutes the false charges by silence. By silence. Isn't that an amazing character? You've seen what's going on in the news. You've seen some of the riots and picking on this person or a Christian there or there when they attack them. Could you sit quietly? You know, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. Isn't that amazing self-control to sit there quiet and hear all these charges and not refute them? But for Pilate, Jesus failed to defend himself, it was inconceivable to him. Pilate repeats his question, what's happening here? What about these new charges? Why don't you answer this? I think Pilate sees that Jesus couldn't afford to let these charges go. You should address these, Jesus. But clearly this godless Roman government did not know the character and person of Jesus Christ. He knew what he was there for. He knew what the Father had called him to do. He knew what was in that cup. He knew he had to drink this wrath. And so Jesus, modeling the lamb led to the slaughter, is silent as his life is in peril. Look at verse five. But Jesus made no further answer. And then look at this little phrase. So Pilate was amazed. 
silence of Jesus impressed Pilate. And I think in several areas, one, there's no prisoner like this. This is no ordinary prisoner. Um, Historical record shows that Pilate put lots of people to death. The one record I read, there were 700 deaths just in the last few years, 700 crucifixions before Christ. This man was used to putting prisoners to death. And I think first and foremost, he sees Jesus as no ordinary prisoner. Second, Pilate expected the usual protest. I'm innocent. I've been framed. (laughs) He's used to that coming up. He's heard that from the insurrectionists and others that have, have gone on to death who tried to protest their innocence. Third, Jesus makes no attempt to pressure or manipulate him. There's no political pressure here. There's no pressure coming from him. No, like, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. None of that comes. Jesus silently sits there. And then fourth, I think uh, Pilate admired Jesus for the different positions, for, for the, let me say this, for the difficult position of sitting silently. When you meet somebody who holds their tongue and isn't spiteful, but sits there and has a conversation or sits and listens to you, that's admirable, isn't it? And I think Pilate admired him in this difficult situation. Second thought this morning, Barabbas and the grace of God. Barabbas and the grace of God. I don't want you to miss this point this morning. Here's a man deserving of death. (laughs) If there's a man that deserves the penalty of death, it's Barabbas. And we'll see that in just a few moments. But God is gonna grace him in a way that is unimaginable. This man is gonna go from death to life. He's gonna receive back everything he lost because of his sin. And Christ is gonna take that death for him. Look at verse six with me. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. Well, this verse now starts to provide some background information for us, right? The feast is doubtlessly the Passover that's happening. The Judean feast would be that night, right? Remember what's talked about this? The, the Galilean feast in Jerusalem was Thursday night. And then Friday night, the uh, Passover feast uh, was for the Judean Jews. And so he's referring to that. So here's some background here. Pilate decides that he's going to attempt to find some kind of justice in this trial. And he's explained his view of Jesus' innocence. He said, I think he's innocent. I find no guilt in him. Pilate offers punishment to Jesus. The other texts show us, and then the end of this one will say that he did it. He says, look, I'm gonna go punish him. I'm gonna beat him, demoralize him. I'm gonna go do all this stuff. So I don't think he's guilty. I'm gonna beat him. Isn't that enough? And that didn't seem to be there. He, he's, he's putting forth this. So now Pilate turns to a long-term custom that the governors of the region had at their disposal. And this is, this is where they would release someone on their great festival like the Passover and un, unleavened bread. They would release this prisoner and it was an act of graciousness. Everything I read on it, they probably picked it up from Egypt. Um, the pharaohs would, once a year, um, take one of the people that they had imprisoned from the people that they uh, had in captivity, and they would make a great political statement of how great they are that they release this prisoner. Uh, we still have presidents that do this today, don't we? Um, and so this became a common practice. So Rome had admired Egypt, and so they adopted this practice. Look at verse 7. The man's name, Barabbas, had been, had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, verse 6 tells you the custom. Verse 7 tells you the name. It's Barabbas. Matthew 27, verse 16, calls him a notorious prisoner. Mark says he's an insurrectionist who committed murder. John adds that he was a robber. So, when you put all this together, this guy's character is terrible. This guy is a wicked, godless man. And most likely, Barabbas was a zealot who, who fought fearlessly, or, or he most likely joined these uncompromising patriots that would kill Roman soldiers. Now, you know what they used to do. They would carry a, a dagger, and they would work their way into a crowd, and there would be a Roman soldier in there, and they'd come in behind and just slip a dagger right between his ribs, pull it out, and walk away. 
They did this constantly and it caused many times and there was an insurrection that was brought up by these men and the Roman had to put this down. In fact, when you study the outbreak of Rome coming and really crushing Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, they had a lot to do with it, these zealots. They were men who wanted justice even at the cost of murder. They wanted justice even at the cost of murder. And remember this thought. When you go study the apostles or the, or the disciples and they list the disciples, remember when they come to Simon Peter, what they say of him? Simon the zealot. Isn't it interesting? I don't know. There's no way to prove this, but did he know him? Did he know, did Peter know Barabbas? Were they friends? Did, did they fight together before, before God called, Jesus called Peter to walk with him? Nobody knows that, but we have to understand these men had a lot of hatred for what was going on. They hated that Rome uh, held them captive. And there were men among them that would see that others would die for that. Look at verse eight with me. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. So the narrative does not tell us who the multitude is or who the crowd is here, but that they were possibly connected to the Sanhedrin is my thought here. Now remember the situation. It's Passover, and it's very early in the morning. And this plays right into the hands of the religious leaders to get Jesus tried, condemned, and put to death before people know what's happening. This is what they're trying to do. The crowd also, those that are there, probably family members of the Sanhedrin said, hey, we need to get this done. They came along. And then there's this group that's been politically wrangling for the release of Barabbas. Still happens in our country. They know the president is going to free, pardon some people by the end of the year. And so people start petitioning for that. So it's most likely there was family there who was petitioning. They were supporters of Barabbas. And they would not have been hard to win over at all. Now look at verse 9 with me. Pilate answered them and saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now clearly Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He's already claimed that. And he continues to seek to release him. And it's obvious the cries for Barabbas were dominated, um, just very dominant within the crowd. So the question was, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? I know what you're saying, but do you really want me to kill one of your own, one of those who might be one of your rulers? And, and I don't doubt that Pilate was using the king of the Jews title as sarcastic. Um, he was probably poking some fun at the religious leaders, but he sees Jesus as innocent. Look at verse 10. For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Now, if there's one guy who knows about envy and jealousy and, and manipulation, it was Pilate. He didn't care about life. He had condemned so many people to death, didn't know if they were innocent or not. He, he didn't care about those things. And even his self-imposed title of Jesus, the king of the Jews, was a shot at the religious leaders. But yet, Pilate knows this, knows about envy, right? He knows about jealousy and he knows what's motivating these men. You're motivated by hatred. You're motivated by power. He knew they were safeguarding their, their influence and their, their wages and their prestige among the people. And these wicked men were unmoved by the truth of Jesus. Think about them. So Pilate knows who they are. This is who they are. Jesus stood among them. He taught them. He healed their sick. He did countless miracles. He took on their questions and answered them. They knew who he was, but their wicked men didn't care about that truth. Jesus exposed that hypocrisy, and they hated him. And they were envious of their authority and their power, and they wanted no one to take it from them, and they were willing to murder. Listen to this. One last thought on this. Wicked people know wicked people. They know wicked people. Um, Pilate looks at these guys and says, I know who you are. You're me. You'll do anything to keep your power. Matthew chapter 27 verse 19 records at this time, Pilate's wife comes to him. And what's happening is she gives him a message and says, look, I suffered in this dream because of Jesus And her conclusion was that Pilate should have nothing to do with his condemnation. You should not have anything to do with this. 
And though Pilate dismisses his wife's counsel, it's yet another warning of the sinlessness of Christ. See, Pilate over and over is told this man has done nothing. Look at verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Most likely, while Pilate was dealing with his wife's message, the chief priests were taking this opportunity to move through the crowd. Listen, you can imagine them telling the family of Barabbas and friends, look, look, we almost got him. He's almost free. We just need a little more push here. Just a little more, give a little more, be a little louder, shout a little more, shout for his freedom, and, and he will be released, and the traitor Jesus will die. See, it wasn't hard to st- it's never hard to stir up ignorant people through experience and emotions. It's never hard to do that. You give them something that they think is experiential or hits their emotions, it doesn't have to be truthful, but just hits them in a certain way, they all follow you anywhere. And that's what they were taking advantage of. Just to wind up this thought, brothers and sisters, don't miss what happened to Barabbas here. You know, Barabbas' name means from the father. Isn't that interesting? I, I, I thought and pondered about him this week. I thought, oh God, did you save him? We have no history of him. We know anything about Barabbas after this point. Can you imagine if he's not saved? And he stands before the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who took his punishment, the one who became the substitute for him. He has taken off the stage. He's taking off the cross. He's taking off the death penalty. And Christ has given it in his place. I pray that man knows Jesus. What a beautiful testimony, though, if he does. Could you imagine him giving testimony? I was the one Jesus stood in my stead. I should have died, but he died in my place. Oh, I pray Barabbas knows the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, that one who died in his place becomes his judge. And he suffers eternally. Third thought, the silent savior in the shouting crowd. The silent savior in the shouting crowd. Look at verse 12 with me. Answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? Well, notice just a little word again here. I like seeing the stuff in the text. See, it points to Pilate's further effort to release Jesus even after the disappointing vote of the crowd, right? He's not giving up. He knows that Jesus is innocent. And it's without a doubt that the Bible is reinforcing the impeccability of Jesus Christ over and over throughout this trial. Read the, read the narrative together, what we call the harmony of the gospel. Read them together over and over. And the verbs tell you that this is being repeated over and over. I find no fault in him. But the depravity of man is on full display as well here. And while the silent son of God innocently waits condemnation, depravity is on full display. They don't care about the truth. They don't care what the truth is. They want their way, and they want Jesus to die. Now, even a wicked man like Pilate could see the injustice here. His pride thought he was in control of things, but his actions were according to the will of God. One of the times Jesus does speak, because he does speak during the trial, he speaks with power and authority. John chapter 19, I think many of you know this, Pilate says to him, why don't you speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you or I have authority to crucify you? Now you got Jesus' attention. And he says, you would have no authority over me unless it be given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So he's given him a little bit of, all right, you got a hot spot in hell, but there's one hotter for Judas and these chief priests. But the main point of it is, you have no authority over me. I am the lamb led to the slaughter. I am obeying my father. I have many that I will gather to myself. I am doing this at the will of my father. You're way out of line. What a statement Jesus made. And Pilate once again decides, to, and as you, if you look back at our text, he decides to test the popular opinion poll again of the crowd. He comes back. Notice in verse 12, he says, Then what shall I do with him who called who you called the king of the Jews. Now, it's clear that Pilate has granted the request of Barabbas. Can you see that in the text? So what shall I do with him? Well, that, that, 
isn't hard to look at that text and say, okay, he's already granted the release of Barabbas. And it's interesting, it seems as though Pilate is willing to release Jesus as well if they wish. I'm going to give you Barabbas and I'm going to give you Jesus because I don't think he's done anything worthy of death. Now, it seems that the people want nothing to do with this. They challenge this Roman ruler. And the whole narrative causes you to see the repeated attempts that Pilate does, but, but they don't care. John 19, 12 says, as, Pilate, as a result, Pilate made efforts to release him. He was making efforts. The word is multiple, multiple efforts. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, listen to this, you are no friend of Caesar. And everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. Oh, they threw the Caesar card. That was it. That was it. What a statement. Here, these Jews who knew they were to have no other gods, no other rulers over them. The Lord was supposed to be their ruler. They come out and say, Caesar basically is our king. They go on, you can read the narrative. And so if you say this against, uh, against Jesus, you don't put him to death, you're against Caesar. Oh, they pushed him into a political corner, didn't they? And look, at this point, the crowd is at riot stage and in complete rebellion to God and Pilate. Look at verse 13. After Pilate asked them, what shall I now do with Jesus, who you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Matthew 12, 22, Pilate says, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And the, and the Bible says, they all said, crucify him. The narrative does not show anybody in this crowd who was favorable for Jesus. And it seems the entire crowd has now been won over the pro-Brabbas people have been won over by, a, by the freedom for a guilty man versus the execution of an innocent man. And these religious leaders have come to this Gentile leader to condemn Jesus. And they're not leaving without a verdict. Maybe they said this, no crucifixion, no peace. I don't know. We hear that today, don't we? Can you imagine this? No crucifixion, no peace. They're not leaving till they have the death sentence on this man. And I, and I thought about this this week, and a dear brother talked to me after first service. He said, man, Scott, no crucifixion, no peace. You can see that both ways. You can see the hatred of the people, and then you could see that from a believer. No, no crucifixion, no peace for us. We would never be at peace with God. Romans chapter five says, now we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So this crucifixion was due, but that's not what this crowd was here for. They're not here for justification. They're not here for imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're here because they hate him. And they want him put to death. Look at verse 14 with me. But Pilate said, listen to this phrase, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Notice that phrase, what evil has he done? It implies a denial to their surprising demand. Again, wicked Pilate is asking the question, what evil has he done? If there's a man who knows evil, it's this guy. You know, when presidents use the word sin or evil, they get bashed, don't they? That is not a term our world likes in any shape or form. Here, Pilate, the, gov the ruling governor of Jerusalem in this Judea, in this massive area, says, what evil has he done? He's going beyond just their charges. He's proving that Jesus is sinless. When you talk about the term holiness, one of the great definitions of holiness is absent of evil. Isn't that amazing? Pilate is speaking of the holiness of the Lord Jesus, though he does not understand that. But again, this wicked Pilate is recognizing this unjustness and demands of this crowd, and he's attempting to try to control them, but he can't. John chapter 19 says that Pilate had Jesus scourged. He had thorns driven into his head. He put a purple robe on him. He had attempted to move the people to pity so that they would, they would see the injustice. He's done all of this. He said he's innocent. He now has him beat. He goes through all of these things, takes care of all the charges and yet that was not enough. 
What evil has he done? I think Pilate was inviting the crowd to produce evidence of evil. But they couldn't. And because they couldn't, look what they do. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. See, there's nothing to do with truth here. It's just get louder, get meaner, push people into the corner, do what it takes to get your point across. And this is where the crowd has gone. And the only answer the crowd could come up was just more loud, more fierceness for his crucifixion. They now gain the power of public pressure. That's what they have now. They have the power of public pressure through this mob mentality and this relentless shouting. Pilate and Herod clearly probably enjoyed Passover weekend. All these Jews flood in. There's all this feasting. It seems to be a happy people. When your slaves are happy, the master's happy, right? Probably. And now this has turned into just a wreck. And probably Pilate's thinking, this is the last thing I wanted to start my weekend with. And yet he's caught. And in the end, he follows his wicked heart. Look at verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. See, Pilate was no longer concerned with simply dispensing justice, but was now motivated by political pressure. You're no friend of Caesar. He could see what happens. He knows that he has to resolve this. These demands could, could be a problem to him. He knows that that. Tiberius, the emperor Tiberius, lost his position, who would have been up in the northern of him, lost his position because he had too many riots in his, in his area, and he didn't control them, and so Rome removed him. He knew that it happened. Plus, Luke chapter 13 says that, that Pilate had mixed the blood of Galileans in a sacrifice in some godless thing, and he's already had charges against him, and now he starts to think politically, oh man, if these people are this mad and they start sending this to Caesar, I'm going to lose my power and my authority. And so the Bible says he wishes to satisfy the crowd. He caves. He caves. Look at the end of the verse, verse 15. Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed, them, handed him over to be crucified. The syntactical nature of the sentence, the structure here, is really referring back that he had already had Jesus whipped and beat. That was part of why he was trying to get him released and, and the other accounts show that. But I want you to know, just before we go to our last point, probably by this time, Jesus is unrecognizable. He's been beat up in front of Annas. He's been beat up in front of Caiaphas. He's now been beat up in front of Herod. They mocked him, made fun of him, beat him, spit on him. Now he's been beat by Pilate, and he's still heading for another beating by the Roman soldiers. If Mary was there, and there's no text that tells us he was, she was, but she would not have recognized her son by this time. And so now this Lord Jesus Christ who had only helped these people, only been kind to them, only spoke the truth to them is being led away by ruthless soldiers. I want to close this because we'll finish the, the rest of what happens to the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 15 of these next couple of weeks. But I, I want to just ask a question with point four. What will you do with Jesus? It's really something we have to think about. It's not hard to prove that there was a historical Jesus even accounts of, uh, of his trial and the hostilities against him and his crucifixion. There's no problem. Even, not even using the Bible, history records this historical Jesus. These truths were prophesied and fulfilled by Christ. But ultimately, what will you do with him? Unfortunately, people hear this message. This is not a new message, right? Men have stood in pulpits for hundreds of years, thousands of years now since Christ's resurrection and preach this text, preach what Christ did, and many people walk away unhealed. And I'm not talking about physical healing. When we looked at Isaiah 53, 5, it said, by his scourgings we are healed. Has Christ healed you? See, you're spiritually sick. You're dying. You're terminal. You ain't going to make it. Our sin has caused us 
to be dead, born dead. There is no spiritual pulse. We are already on the table flatlining, folks. We're dead. We are spiritually sick, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ who heals you, and so has Christ healed you? Or is this just another great story, and I really enjoyed listening to it today? Has Christ healed you? Has Christ saved you? And let me go one more step further. Has he transformed you? See, to say that, oh, I believe that Jesus died for me, but no impact on my life. Doesn't affect my marriage, doesn't affect my children, doesn't affect my neighborhood, doesn't affect my job, doesn't affect anything, is really to say that Jesus does not have the power to change you. See, we believe in a salvation that not only saves us, but changes us. Once saved, always changing. God is changing us into the image of his son. So when you listen to Isaiah 53, 5, listen to the whole thing, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. Jesus was pierced because we understood what the law was, what God's word is, and we trespassed, we, we willfully disobeyed him. And then the verse goes on even more. It says this, he was crushed for our iniquities. Do you believe the father crushed the son in order to save you? Well, that's a little more than just believing some Bible story, isn't it? My God crushed Jesus so I can have an eternal relationship with him. That's a little different than walking an aisle and saying a prayer and saying, oh yeah, I'm good. I get to go to heaven. Do you believe the father crushed the son? Do you believe he put him through all of this so you and I could have salvation? See, that's, that's way different, isn't it? The verse goes on, the chastising for our well-being fell upon him. See, it's just not the cross. It's all of this. It's showing the impeccability of Christ and all of that judgment, every lash of that whip, every spit or kick or everything that went on him was because of our sin. He literally stands in the place of us Barabbases. Stands in the place of that. And takes it upon himself. And then finally it says he was scourged for our healing. For our healing. Do you believe that? See, often you will hear me say things like this. Have you seen his glory? One of the times, one of the things they say often with people who tell me about someone who says they're a Christian, but they're just going through repeated struggles, repeated struggles, and I'll say, I just don't know if they've seen his glory. And maybe you're hearing you say, well, is that talking about, ooh, the awe, the whiteness, and the brightest sun, and all of those things? Yes, but that's not all of it. It's this. This is his glory. This is a man fully God, fully human, who could stand in our place and take such atrocities, such a hostility, never sin, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. That is seeing his glory. Yes, he will be the, the bright shining star of heaven. He, we will need no sun or moon. He, all of his glory, we will see him and all that. Oh, that's beautiful, and that's reserved for, for saved sinners. But I'll tell you what, if you want to see his glory, it starts right here. Seeing that he took your place. He willfully stood in your place. John Owen said this so long ago, but so true. No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not, in some measure, behold it by faith in this world. You're not going to get to heaven and all of a sudden, oh, that's who Jesus is. True faith, saving faith, God grants it. God gives it. When he gives it to you, you see him for who he is. You see him as the son of God in this text right here in Mark 15. You see him as innocent. You see him as impeccable. You see him as standing in your place. That's to see his glory. It isn't just a Bible story. It's our story. It's our story of how God opens our eyes to see his beauty and what he would do for such wretched people and make us his own. I started with Hebrews chapter 12 and I want to go back and just finish it this way. Fix your eyes on Jesus. 
He's the author. And he's the perfecter of our faith. You do not have an author and you do not have a perfecter outside of him. So why do we look elsewhere? And look, brothers and sisters in this room, I know we, our eyes tend to wander at times. And look, you're going to walk out of this room and, and before you get home, if you happen to turn on the radio or bump into somebody at Publix, you are going to hear COVID, elections, problems, riots, racial issues. You're going you're to be bombarded by that stuff. And the Bible says what? Fix your eyes on Jesus. You have to see his glory to do that. You have to be captured by him. You have to be overwhelmed to who he is. Otherwise, everything just pulls you away so easily. You're so disturbed and frustrated by all the things that go on. And you can't walk with him. And you find yourself drifting into temptation. Oh, brother and sisters, fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and you said, Scott, I don't know that I've seen his glory. Let me tell you, you can't inherit it from your family. You try to do that, you go to hell. Just because your family or someone you know is a Christian, you're not a Christian. It is something God grants you. He gives you faith. You can't feel bad enough in order to be saved. Judas felt horrible, hung himself, went to hell. You can't come to Jesus by your good works. He says they're just filthy rags. But let me tell you this, friend. Ask God to grant you faith. You don't have to walk an aisle, say a prayer. We'll be down here and we'll love to talk to you. But I'm telling you, ask God to grant you faith. You can't get it on your own. You can't earn it. Only he can give it to you. And when he gives it to you, you'll repent of your sins. You'll see the ugliness of your sin. And you'll see the glory of our Lord and Savior. And you'll go, he's my Savior now. And it happens where you sit. It happens where you drive in your car. I've watched men and women get saved in all kinds of places when God grants them faith. And one last thought, don't be a pretender. Church is full of them. Jesus said the, when, when the disciples saw the tares among the wheat, the weeds, he said, should we pull them out? He says, no, they're always gonna be among the wheat. There's people in this room who think they're saved and they're not. I fear for that. Search your heart, brother or sister or friend. Search your heart. See if you're of the faith, Paul tells the Corinthians. See if you belong to him. Then he will be glorious. And you will see the effects of a crucified, risen Savior in your life. It'll start to work its way into your marriage. You won't be able to stop it. It'll start to work your way in your parenting. You won't be able to stop it. It'll start to come out of your mouth at work. You won't be able to stop it. Because he's your Savior now. He's your master. And if you're here and you're struggling with sin, I pray that you will repent and let your heart be recaptured by Christ. Find joy again. Find victory over nagging sins. And let Jesus be Lord. Let him be master. Father, I thank you for this passage. It's humbling to study, Lord. It just overwhelms me. And I know so many here, Lord, look at this passage together and we go, that's our Savior. Why are they doing that to him? And Lord, those that are, know their Bibles, they know this must take place. We know he must be chastised for us. He must be pierced for us. And yet, Lord, we've changed us. We, we love you, Lord Jesus. And I'm sure there's many in this room who would lay their life down. They would die for Christ if you asked them. And so, Lord, as we study this passage, it hurts a little because you're so beautiful to us. But the more we study it, the more beautiful you are, Lord. So, Father, please let this have great effect in our lives. Cause us to follow you, to love you more, to deal with sin that nags at us, that, that's lodged its way into our hearts somewhere, Lord. Let this passage do its work, Lord. Let the beauty of Christ transform us. Father, finally, I pray for anyone in this room or those who may hear this message that you would grant them faith, God. Cause them to cry out and ask you for faith. Redeeming, saving faith that transforms their life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we have a closing benediction? And
And then we will leave and go serve our Lord. May God bless us and keep us and cause us to see his son's glory. May the hostilities towards Christ cause us to consider him in all we do and say. And may his suffering strengthen our souls to not grow weary or lose heart. And may the finished work of Christ be our driving force. And may we run our race for the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? Amen. Mm, love.